Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your hands. Let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work Ram Zone. I hope you're never the same. And we've got Stephen Curry on the phone today. Corey on the phone today. I'll make sure he tells me in just a second the proper way to say his last name, but he's got a very interesting workplace. Stephen is a Christ follower who is Palestinian by nature, living in Bethlehem and working in Jerusalem. If you talk about a dangerous workplace, that's probably as dangerous as it can get. And Stephen is here to share his testimony and about the ministry that he's involved in. Stephen, welcome to I Work For Him. Thank you, dear brother. I really appreciate it. I'm honored. I'm humbled to be able to challenge your listeners and be able to share with them what God is doing in, in Israel and to give them a call to action to stand with the, the, the believers in the Holy Land. All right, so say your last name for me the right way so I don't screw it up, and I apologize. <laughs> well, that's, that's all right. The, 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 the real Israeli Middle Eastern way, it's Huri, but you'll be, fine with, you'll be fine with curry. <laughs> <laughs> no, if, it, if it's Huri, I'll get it. I, you're right, I better not. I might spit all over the microphone. But all right, so Huri. Okay, all right, Steven. so Stephen, we'll just call you Stephen. All right, that's good. All right, listen, yeah, that's, we, that's we, before, we, before we get into, well, you've got an amazing heritage. I mean, a very unusual heritage. A Palestinian Christian pastoring your church in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, worshiping the God of the Christians and the Jewish Savior, Jesus, but the Jews don't recognize Jesus. How did you first learn about Jesus? Well, it took an American evangelist who was in Jerusalem for two weeks 
attended a small a small Baptist church in Jerusalem, um, and uh, my father uh, ran into him as a young Arab Israeli boy, accepted Christ, attended this church, and then a few years later he met another evangelist who was a b- president of a Bible college in the U.S. And uh, he asked my father, what are you doing here? And my father's response was, um, I'm a born-again uh, Israeli local uh, Jerusalemite. And this evangelist began to weep and cry. And he asked my father, what are you praying for here in this garden tomb in Jerusalem? And my father's response was, I, I became a believer a few years ago, a couple years ago. And now I'm praying for God to give me an opportunity to get a Bible degree. And this man told my father, pack your bags um, and your your prayer has been answered. I'm the president of a Bible college in Springfield, Missouri. You're coming with me to America. <laughs> and what's the name of that Bible college in Springfield, Missouri? It was BBC. And, and is it no Baptist longer? Baptist Bible College. Baptist Bible College. Are they still around? Oh, they're still around. Yep, they're still uh, still around. And that's the same one that uh, Jared Falwell went to and, and several other people in America attended that small Bible college. Wow. Well, I read your book, in the backyard of Jesus. And I just, I love the pictures because you really just lay it all out for, hey, here's what my everyday life is like. And and, and it's and it's, it's got some great humor in there because your story is funny. I mean, it's what I love the best is, okay, so you, you're, well, I don't want to give away this. I don't want to spoil it. But I, you've got, I really appreciate the transparency and vulnerability you put into the story. So your dad goes to a church or goes to Bible college in Springfield, Missouri, Baptist Bible College. How did he then become a pastor back in Bethlehem? Well, he came back. He, you know, he's from Jerusalem. He came back to, to Israel, and he realized that Bethlehem, the birth city of Jesus, is lacking the gospel. Hmm. And that, that burdened his heart to start the, the church there. We call it a second miracle, because the first is the birth of Jesus Christ, and the, and the second is a miracle, the birth of this church, because against all odds, nobody wanted a born-again, evangelical, uh, God-loving, Bible-loving, um, Israel-loving, um, Arab-loving, just ministry to start a Bethlehem. People did not want that. Uh, but, my, but against all odds, 38 years today, we are the fastest-growing movement, evangelical Arab movement, with the largest Arab-Israeli church in Bethlehem in Jerusalem, and, and God just taken us and growing us even further and further for the last 38 years. We're humbled. You know, when we talk about opposition in the workplace, a lot of people are going, well, I don't know how to share my faith. My, you know, people are hostile to my, <laughs> to my faith. There's no more place that's more hostile than where you live to the faith of a Christ follower. Yet each and every day you get up and you go to work. And, and, and really, the hotbed of civilization, I mean, really, all of it started there and it's all going to end there. And people just don't like Jesus. You know, the, the, the reality is, brother, the Middle East, the Middle East as a whole is a country that is entrenched in Islam. And it, the, the, we, oh, I tell people we have to differentiate between a person that calls himself a, a, a Muslim by identity and Islam itself. Because when you separate the two, the majority of, of the Muslim population in, in the Middle East Besides a few prayers and besides a few basic points about Islam, they don't know anything else. That's all they know. 
So by ruling them out, what you do is you, you, you put a hindrance on the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I go back to when I was 16 when a young Muslim came to us wanting to learn about Jesus because he, he was just wasn't, didn't have peace in his heart. Being a young boy who grew up in Islam, he just didn't have answers. He, he knew there's no personal relationship with, with God. After two and a half weeks of discipling him, he disappeared. And his, what happened to him was his mom found his Arabic Bible, and she gave it to his uncles. And for three days, they locked him up in his bedroom. They unwinded a metal hanger, and they began to beat him over and over and over and over again. They're, at, they're telling him, deny Jesus. You're disgracing your prophet. You're disgracing your religion. Not one single time would he deny Jesus Christ as his personal Savior ever being beaten up for three days every three, four hours. Mm. And to make the long story short, um, the, the, his uncles got together and said he's been brainwashed, but we got to go after the people that are doing the brainwashing. So I was walking down the church street towards a church in Bethlehem. I was around 16 and a half at that time. And when I was walking towards our building, a person came up to me and says, are you Steve? And I said, yes. I, I thought he's asking for directions or what be it. When I said yes, I felt something burning in the back of my head. And I, and I turned around and I, and I touched my head thinking it's a bug or a fly. I realized it's actually blood. And I turned around and that's when I realized I was being attacked. And about five or six guys had metal chains in their hands and wooden sticks. They began to beat me to the ground over and over and over again, calling me infidel and traitor and calling me names like proselyzer, which means sharing Jesus. And, and after a few seconds of being beaten to the ground, I remember I said, Lord, if you get me through this, I will love you even more. And when I said that statement, I literally felt the white blanket cover my body. And I tell people I understood what the psalmist was saying when, I, when he said, I, even if I lay my bed in the pit of hell, thou art there with me also. I understood what the psalmist was saying. And that beating made me the man I am today. The, the 11 ministries, um, starting ministries in areas that nobody wants to even minister into, let alone walk into and minister into. So we give the glory to God. And that's that we got to get up and, and know that what we do is for a greater cause, for a greater purpose. And I encourage this and every single listener today to do the same. It's a great story. Let's step back just a little bit because, you know, it's it's one thing for your father to become a Christ follower, get the opportunity to go to a Bible school, unusual as it may be, in Springfield, Missouri, goes back to Bethlehem, starts a church, yet you had a lot of opposition to becoming a Christ follower yourself, but you ended up following in your dad's exact same steps. How did God work that out? You know, I, I tell people, it's it, it, jokingly but seriously both in one. I would see people come into my parents' home 1, 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. They're, 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 they're having problems. They're afraid. They're scared. They're, they, they just told they're going to they have a, a, a sickness that might take their life. Or, or, or even people that are coming 2, 3 a.m. in the morning to our apartment because we lived at the church. They would come in. They're having problems, family problems, marriage problems, or, or any, any of that. Right? Even people that have been kicked out of their homes for, for publicly converting and baptized. But I would see them 2, 3 hours in the morning. And later, when the sun is rising, I see them walking out of a home, smiling, laughing, having hope. I looked at my father in one of those mornings, and I said, Dad, I want to do that. I want to uh, wanna, wanna see people walk into our church doors or my apartment doors or my office doors, weeping, crying, broken, scared, hopeless. And I want to see them walk out with a big smile, with a big statement that I have hope, and that hope is found through Jesus Christ 
or for those that, that might reject to accept Christ at that moment, at least to take the, to adopt the teachings of Jesus as a message of hope for their life. Now, you had to have that door open for you then in order for you to go to Bible school. You had the desire, okay, Dad, I want to go to Bible school too. And your dad goes, well, I'd love you to go to the Bible school I went to. But that took, I mean, that was an amazing hand. How did God end, have you end up back in Springfield, Missouri, in the same place your dad did 20 years earlier? Well, you know, I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan of legacy. Um, you know, if if uh, if a place like that uh, had a small role in my father's life, then I want something like that to have a role in my life. And it's it's one of those given things where you know my father didn't say you have to go there, but I just I just walked up to him and I said, I if I go to Bible college, I would like to go to where you went because they had so much influence on your life. I want to do the same, and, and that's the concept of legacy in the Middle East. Around the world, whether you're a business person, a lay person in the corporate world, even a stay-at-home mom, or even you work out of your own, your own your own business, even if you work out of your home, legacy is important because it's what you leave behind uh, to build the next generation of the next kingdom of God. What I love best is what your parents said as you took that opportunity to go to Springfield, Missouri. Your parents and your family said one thing to you, Stephen. Go get your education, but don't come home with what did they tell you? With an American (laughs) wife. Don't come home with a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman from the middle from the from the middle of America. And and what 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 happened? Well, for three and a half years, I I stuck to that stuck to that promise. But uh, the last semester, one of my uh, one of my one of my uh, dorm guys who lived in the same college campus dorms. Invited me to come to St. Augustine, Florida. That's right, the beautiful a, state of Florida, right where we're talking Florida. today. That's right, <laughs> Florida. <laughs> and he, he invited some of his uh, folks that he graduated with from high school. And one of those people that came was Sherry, who became my beautiful American, blue-eyed, tall, uh, brunette, uh, all-American girl um, that God gave me a beautiful wife. Now, eleven years later, we have three children. And she lives with me in Israel, so I didn't, uh, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't heed to the full promise. Uh, but that's because I found the, the the greatest gift God could ever give me besides my salvation. Well, it's amazing in the book you just described the love story, and you described the fact that your wife Sherry had as much of a love for the people of the Middle East, the the Arab Israelis that you were from. She was, she loved being involved in that ministry, and she couldn't imagine not going with you. Yep, that's that's you know. What she realized is that how fortunate she is to grow up in a culture where Christianity is, is a, you know, in every corner almost you see a church or you see, or every other channel of radio or TV, you most probably see some as evidence or some dust of Christianity in some reality, regardless where you live in the United States of America. And she realized how granted for granted she's been taken how blessed she is and that's actually what takes us into our vision for jerusalem we began to target down areas where the gospel is not being preached or or the areas where there's no church a bible believing church and that takes us into jerusalem which i will focus on uh, throughout this episode and to even at the end end with giving people a challenge of what we're going through this the, the greatest struggle in our in our in our ministry's history. And that's what we'll do right after the next break. But just we, we got like 25 seconds left. Tell how tell our audience how being married to a brunette with blue eyes is that is a cultural challenge where you live. Do you guys have trouble in your marriage? Do people give you a hard time? 
Well, it, it, no, because to them, she she's serving the people. And to them, they, they tell her constantly, people around the world want to wanna leave their country to go to America. You left America and came here. And that, to them, just stands out to them in such a strong manner. It's it's overwhelming to them that she would... So they respect Slover just as much as me in some, in some cases more than, more than me. Because to them, it's a given. That's my country. I'll go back home. Jerusalem, I'm a Jerusalemite. Um, to them, it's given for me to come back. But for Sherry, to give up her country, a luxury, living in Florida, uh, on in Tampa, close to the water bay. To them, that's sacrifice. That would be tough. Martha's looking and going, yep, that's right. That would be a tough one. Stephen, talk to us about your ministry in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Are you still living in Bethlehem and then commuting to Jerusalem, or have you moved to Jerusalem? Well, temporarily, I am based in Bethlehem until we are able to get our multi-purpose worship center in the city of Jerusalem, which is right now our biggest challenge and our and our goal for uh, this 21st century of, of uh, relighting the, the 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 lighthouse in the in the city where Christ's cross laid on Golgotha Calvary the cross so when you look at your ministry in Jerusalem and you you said it's fast expanding people are people are really attracted to the message of Christ but yet it's still dangerous. Is, I mean, don't you really face some danger in all of this? I mean, because it's not just like a, a, a an evangelism-friendly place. You know, it's. Um, I tell people, uh, growing up in the Holy Land in Israel, in the West Bank, in the Palestinian communities, in that whole realm, I've never known a single day in my life without a, with not experiencing or sensing, hearing, smelling, just or seeing um, war and capacity in my life. And I tell people that does something to a human being. Thankfully to me, what is it was it what it did to me? It made me realize how short life is. Mm-hmm. And therefore I, I talk about this in my book. I challenge people to live life to the fullest. honoring God first, honoring those whom you love next, because you can be here one moment and you can be gone the next. And that's applicable to any country you live in. And it's not easy living in Israel. It is dangerous. It has uh, you, you sort of set your own pace of of, of security uh, hazardous uh, by what I say, by what I do, by what my father says and does, by what some of our full time evangelists say and do. Um, we set the pace of how much danger we want to expose ourselves to by where we go, by where, by where we're ministering. And we have a we have a 501c3 um, in America called Holy Land Missions, and we update people on a regular basis with our newsletter about I'm going to Gaza, I'm going to Jenin, pray for us, um, begin to fast, uh, um, or support a persecuted family. So we always update people. It's, it, it is dangerous, brother. It's it's not a, it's not every single day, but it's definitely on a weekly basis by what we do, what we say. In that community. So why is it so dangerous to be a Christ follower in Bethlehem and Jerusalem? Just spell it out for people living here that thinks that would be really cool to be a Christ follower, yet, you know, you're living where Christ was. So tell, tell people sure. why. You know, in Bethlehem, it's it's a lot a lot easier than many other places. Um, what, what I mean is a lot easier. It's a lot easier for you to get up in the morning and to have a Christian name. Many people in Israel, brother, are, are distinguished by three different characteristics. One, by their name. Their name tells them a lot of times, eight out of ten people, people you'll know who they are or who what their faith or religion is by their name. 
So you have a name like George or Henry or Stephen or what be it, automatically they know you're Christian. If you have a name like Ahmad, Muhammad or what be it, automatically you're Muslim. Then, of course, you have the other side, the Jewish side. So in Bethlehem, you can get up in the morning, go to work, or walk in the street. Um, people will know that you're a Christian because you belong to a Christian family in, by identity. Many of those folks are okay. They get up in the morning, although it is getting a little bit more dangerous. Now, what separates me from a George who gets up in the morning, people know him as a Catholic or Greek Orthodox or, or a traditional Christian. What separates someone like myself is they know I'm a strong evangelist, or they know that some of our church members have been sharing their faith with Jesus. They would be under danger, or they would be considered to be in a difficult, dangerous position because of them sharing their faith. That's what separates me and, and a person named George in Bethlehem who has a Christian family. And these Christians could be by name or by identity or by uh, just generational um, passing down. Well, and I think it's important that people recognize that you're not just hated by the Arabs. You're hated by the Jews, too, even though you serve a Jewish Savior. I mean, the Savior of the Jews— the Nazarene, as a lot of people call him, a lot of Jews here in the United States call, oh, you're a follower of the Nazarene. Isn't it an amazing thing when you're you're surrounded by the Jewish people, yet they are they're so hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, brother, the the amazing part of all this is it's you know the the truth is yes, the the Jewish community does not like it, or when someone like myself comes into their community and talks about Jesus. The beautiful part about our relationship with many of the Jewish community is they look at me as a, as a, as a, as a Jerusalemite. I'm an Arab. I'm also an Israeli. I'm also considered to be a Palestinian by some. So I go in there, and I love them. And that is what—that's the embodiment of Romans 11, where it says, they shall be drawn by jealousy. Meaning that to them, and I am an Arab, by default, I'm supposed to hate them. By default, I'm supposed to be different than them. But of course, Jesus Christ said to love the Lord thy God. And then, of course, he goes on to say to love thy neighbor as thyself. And in this context, who is my neighbor? My neighbor isn't the person uh, that's sitting in the pew next to me in church or somebody sitting next to me in, in, in office work. My neighbor is the other. In reality, he's saying love your neighbor, love, to love those that you're supposed to hate. That's what Jesus was trying to say in this context, is to love those that are different than you. So in the Jewish context, many of the Orthodox Jewish community, they, they don't mind us being there because we are Arab. Uh, of course, they, they do have a problem whenever I do start sharing Jesus with the Jewish community. But, but the, 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 I will close with this, brother. We've been invited by many Jewish Orthodox community leaders to go into their synagogues and actually tell our story. Their question is, why do you as an Arab love us? And I always start because I was saved by a Jew. And that really touched <laughs> their hearts. And they begin to wonder, who is this Jew that, uh, that, that, that changed your life? And so, you know, I would say for me, I have more dangers than in the Arab community than the Jewish community. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that uh, everybody likes us there. And there's a lot, until the listeners, a lot of Arabs in the community that also in Israel, both in West Bank, Palestinian communities, and in, and in, in Israeli communities, a lot of Arabs that are friendly. I'm talking about Arab Muslims and Arab traditional Christians that are friendly, that are nice, that are kind. And you can make them an enemy or you can make them 
a friend, a neighbor by showing them love and forgiveness. All right, Stephen, back to you. Martha and I really want to hear, okay, what this church that you've planted and that you're growing in Jerusalem, what is the biggest need of the Christ followers in that area? Well, brother, the, the amazing part about it is in Jerusalem, there's only room for 300 people to go to church. So 11 years ago, 11, 15 years ago, my Uncle George, who was a 6'6", 300-plus pound, we called him a monster because he liked no one, no one liked the guy. <laughs> Uncle George had anger problems with no anger management program. He, um, we invited him to a conference, and he said yes, which is a miracle. And on the last day of this conference, he becomes a believer. We come, we leave the, the, the Galilee, come back to Jerusalem. This was in 1996, and we get off the bus in Jerusalem. And he asks us, he begs my father, Uncle George, my dad's oldest brother, he begs my father and some of our leaders to please start a church in Jerusalem because he wants a place where others like him can hear Jesus and be set free, uh, be set free from the trials and hunger and, and, and animosity and hatred and just burden. And also others can learn about Jesus like himself. And that birth Calvary Church, we call the Calvary because the first property we rented was around the block from uh, the place where the cross stood. Wow. So... What happened was we, we rented a property within a few years. Uncle George, during the few years he became a believer, he loved one verse, and his verse is found in Mark 8, which says, any man that hangs on to his life will lose it. Any man that lays down his life will, for another will gain it. And Uncle George loved this verse. We can never understand why. He just loved it. But we didn't understand at that time that God had imprinted this verse on Uncle George's heart. So if you, if, you got a, if you got a church building that can only hold 300 people, so how many services a day do you have? Well, in Jerusalem, as, at, at this moment, there's only room for people, for 300 people to go to church. So with, in our case, in our situation, that, prop, that church that Uncle George helped us start, you know, he was beaten to death by his faith. Hmm. And his martyrdom shut us down. So we moved to another property. In July 6, 2004, I went back, I restarted Calvary. And we got kicked out again. And what do I mean kicked out? I mean, they go to our landlord and they say, if you don't kick them out, we're going to burn your property down. So we become high-risk tenants. So, so three properties later, 15 years later, three properties, as of November, brother, this last year of November, we, we have no place. We're the largest church in Jerusalem with nobody willing to rent us a property. So we began to fast and to pray January, February, March of this year. And our fasting and our prayer led us to, to realize that the only option is to, to purchase a multi-purpose worship center in Jerusalem. And right now, we are campaigning in, in America called Save the Jerusalem Church Campaign. And people can find more about it on off of our website, which is holylandmissions.org. They can go on there, and they can read, read about it. They can actually see a video of Uncle George's wife, who, who, who shares how Uncle George was beaten to death with a metal rod. If there's any time to really invest in the kingdom of God, um, especially on earth here, it's by helping us save this church in Jerusalem. We're the only, the only Bible-believing evangelical church that loves Israel, loves the community, loves Arabs, loves the Jews, in that part of the city of Jerusalem, brother. So they can go out to holylandmissions.org, holylandmissions.org. How much money do you need to raise in order to be able to buy a building? 
Well, Jerusalem is, is one of the most expensive real estates in the world, simply not because of the fanciness of its building, but because you're buying, you're buying the location because of it being the, the, the most sought-after city in the world. So as of now, we have raised $1.75 million, uh, $1.75 million we've raised, thank, God, thank be unto God. We need $2.5 million uh, to move into the property. We have till December the 31st to be able to raise the, the rest of the resources, which is $750,000, to be able to move into the property by the end of, of, the, of December. And the, the, the reality about this is it, we are more than just a church, brother. We are, a, a, we are a, an evangelistic training center. We have a leadership, Bible leadership training center. We also have a safe house where if you and your wife, uh, I met your wife as well, by the way, she's a great, great woman of God. Yes, she is. Got to meet her when I was in church. I know know she's with us on the line as well. But uh, the amazing part about it, if you and your wife were converted from Islam or or even came out of Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy, a lot of times people kick out your family and kicks you out of your home. So we we have a safe house uh, in Bethlehem and in Jericho. The only place we don't have a safe house right now is in Jerusalem. And we need a safe house. So all, all this will be a, a part of this property that we are right now negotiating on. We are right now in a contract until December the 31st to be able to be the, the lighthouse that God has intended us to be. And again, we're more than just a Sunday, Wednesday church. We're, we're a community center. We're a leadership training center and, and, and much more. So really, you only need $750,000. What I'm trying to figure out is how do they let, if nobody really wants you to build a church in Jerusalem, how are they letting you buy a property if they know you're an evangelist? Should they, sure, have, brother. Are, are they giving you a hard time or are you kind of telling them, that you're, are you not telling them you're going to put a church there? Well, it's it's uh, it's accumulation of a couple things. Number one, we we've been kicked out of the rental properties the last eleven years because we there's nothing to protect us in the concept of us being a house of worship to to, to the community we just were renting. In December of last year, I met the head imam of Al Aqsa Mosque, and people can actually see this video on our website. I met the head imam of Al Aqsa Mosque, and he he gave me an insight. Because I prayed with him, by the way, on the phone for about 45 minutes and asked the Lord to heal his back, and God healed his back. And that created a relationship with him and I, and he gave me an insight. He says, Pastor Curry, there's a law in the Islamic law, and this is an office that sits in Jerusalem today. It's called Al-Waqf office. And this office protects any house of worship um, from any Islamic uh, 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 opposition. So he said, if you purchase your own property... Uh, you would just send us a letter. He said, I, we will accept it, and your property will be registered as a house of worship um, in the city of Jerusalem, which means that if, for a Muslim to come to threaten a landlord, or even a Muslim to even throw a rock at us, we would act, they, would actually put, they would actually come to, our, to, come to our, our backing. Of course, our protection comes from God, not from men. But God does say to obey those in, in control, to obey those in, in ruling. The Israeli government is also very kind, because Jerusalem is in the Israeli, under the Israeli rules, under the Israeli government. But for me to go to the Israeli government for help uh, it actually puts me at odds with the Arab community. So I have to sort of deal with it within the, within the leadership and the elders. So thankfully, right now we have this, this position where we can be registered as a house of worship, which protects us. Number two, the property location, brother, right now, it sits in an area where it's 50% Muslim, 50% Catholic, Greek, Orthodox. So moving into this location is the perfect ideal scenario because it, it's the area that's not as closed as other Muslim areas. Thirdly, it's across the street from a Jewish Jewish neighborhood, 
which is which makes us the melting pot of, of Jerusalem, where we have we're surrounded by three groups, and with these group, groups are we already are ministering to and serving and reaching out to on a daily basis. We just need to put a stake in the ground and to be able to be a lighthouse. And Paul, I want to I want to conclude with this on this end, brother. Paul did this in First Corinthians and Romans. He traveled. He asked the churches in Corinth and Romans to give to the suffering church in Jerusalem. And the funny part about this, I'm doing this right now. I'm in America right now till mid-December, doing what Paul did, asking to help for help for the suffering, persecuted believers in the city of Jerusalem. Isn't is that ironically amazing? Mm. It's ironic that that's 2,000 years later, you're having to do exactly the same thing. Exactly it, the same thing that Paul did, challenging Christians. And Christians did. They sold their possessions. They, they gave above and beyond because they wanted to see the lighthouse in Jerusalem continue. And, and, and it's a difficult, hard time for me. And I get, I get emotional because we are fighting for the cradle of Christianity in the city of Jerusalem. We are fighting for something strong. You know, we're not asking for money for food or to buy a vehicle. We are asking, we're asking help to be able to, 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 to put up the multi-purpose worship training leadership evangelistic center, the only one in the city of Jerusalem, and, and there's nothing else right now. Before I die, if, or, or, you know, I tell people before I die, I want to see uh, this being lifted up in the city of Jerusalem. And there's any time we need the Christians to act now, it is today, to help us save the church. And we have till December the 31st be able to, to make this down payment in the city. I believe we're going to do it, brother. I really believe it. With people like you and others that are listening, if there's any time to act, it's act now to help us save the church in Jerusalem. All right, so real, and that's really why I wanted to bring you on the air today. I wanted people to understand the plight of a Christ follower in Jerusalem. And everybody, you know, Christians, as they read their Bible, it's it's hard for those of us here in the States who never are going to get that privilege to go to Israel to actually picture it all, but to understand that you're trying to plant the church in the city that our Lord went and was crucified in and was hung on a cross, but he loved that city. He wept over that city. And Paul went all over the Roman Empire raising money for the Christians that were under persecution in Jerusalem and the Macedonian church. Have you gone to Macedonia? Well, I'm not sure which territory that would be today, but the Macedonian church, you know, 2000 years ago gave a lot of money. Maybe you need to head back there. I'm not sure which part of the, I'm not sure which part of the Roman Empire that was back then, but it, it is something that you only need $750,000. So in the United States, if you need, this is a, a an American 501c3. So if you're looking for an end of the year tax write-off, this is a great place to put it. Holylandmissions.org is just, a, you're investing in the Jerusalem church, giving them a place, a sanctuary, a safe place for those, as he said, they're building a church in, the, in between a Muslim neighborhood, a Jewish neighborhood, a, a Greek Orthodox and Catholic neighborhood right in the middle, and they're just looking for support. Holylandmissions.org, holylandmissions.org. I, I just challenge you to write that down. It'll be on our Facebook tonight, but go out there and contribute to helping buy this building and to start the spread of the gospel on a massive, uh, just in a massive way in Jerusalem. Stephen, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It was just a great conversation. Thanks so much for being a part of I Work For Him. Keep in touch via email and let us know when some how you guys do when we get the, when you get the rest of the money. Let's bring you on the air and tell everybody how you did it. Uh, well, I'm humbled. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. We are nothing without the grace of God. We love you all. And please go to your website, colonandmissions.org, and act now to help us save the church. God bless you. All right, Stephen. God Thank bless you. you. Bye-bye. If you're just tuning in right now, you've just missed 
an incredible conversation with Stephen Hori from Jerusalem. He's, they're trying to plant the church in Jerusalem, Martha, and he shared how they're just, they only need to own a property in Jerusalem. They need two and a half million dollars. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And they've come so far. And just to wrap your head around the fact that there is a, an, a need for an evangelical church there and the fact that there are people willing to participate in that and serve that community. And, and all they need is $750,000 more. They've already raised $1.75 million. They need another $750,000 in order to be able to buy this property they've got a contract on. And I just think it's fantastic that we as Christ followers here in the United States can help out. Go to holylandmissions.org, holylandmissions.org. I loved his transparency, and he talked about how he was beaten for his faith uh, and yet said, Lord, if, if you help me survive this, I will serve you and love you even more. Uh, and what a great opportunity. Came to the States, got an education, went back with his American bride and uh, has made a difference in Bethlehem and now Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, he said early on in his testimony when he was talking about going to college that he's a fan of legacy and the legacy that his family is um, allowing God to write in their country is amazing. And uh, what a privilege to be able to hear that firsthand and to understand the persecution that is happening. It's incredible. Hard for us to understand being persecuted for our faith in the United States. We don't really understand that many people are getting beaten for their faith. Although we've had people shot for their faith in several school shootings, but it's just it's just not the same living in fear each and every day, but not living in fear because you know that God is your provider. Amen. God is your almighty provider. All right, so if you missed that, go out to holylandmissions.org and look up and learn more about Stephen's mission there in Jerusalem. You know, as we come to the end of another I Work For Him show, it was a little bit different I Work For Him Radio around Temple Martha, but we had a lot of fun and really inspiring. Yes. Very, very inspiring. Thanks for listening today. Thanks to Jose. He did a great job keeping me connected to Stephen wherever he was wandering all around the United States. Hey, our show sponsors, we highlight them on our website. Would you go out and thank them by considering doing business with them? But when you go out to iWorkForHim.com, I'd like you to click on the iWorkForHim Nation tab. I'd like you to consider, starting Monday morning, making the commitment to start praying for your coworkers and employees by name each and every day. And I ask you, and Martha and I ask you this together, don't we? We sure do. We ask you to do this because prayer changes things. It changes our hearts, and it's going to change this city if we start praying in our workplace. You know, we learned today that really our faith in the United States is challenged, but in the Middle East, it's deadly. And, and really, that's been the legacy of Christ followers in the Middle East for a very long time, that people are killed for being Christ followers. And then we've got, we heard Stephen Horry's story about trying to plant the church in Jerusalem in a Muslim, half-Muslim neighborhood, a Greek Orthodox Catholic neighborhood, and across the street from a Jewish neighborhood to bring the gospel to those people, just to show the love to them. They just need to raise a little bit of money. And I'm not a big fundraiser, but I believe in investing in missions that really make an impact, and that's an impact place. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's that's the, wow. I don't know. It's breathtaking to me. So consider today going out to holylandmissions.org and making a donation today to help build a church, help buy a church. You've been listening to Our Work Room with your hosts, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. We're Christ followers, and we own our own business, but ultimately... I, I work, work for, for him. him.